Richard Henry William and Adela. And so later on, you know, I was yeah. fascinated that my grandmother's imagination was going to the story of British royalty. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's because of the colonial. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so that in, in fact, even my critique of that um, is in a poem called The Lesson. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen. An attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. Good day, everybody. Uh, This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest, who will introduce herself. Uh, Merle, please go ahead. My name is Merle Collins. I live in Maryland, USA. I was born in the Caribbean. In fact, I was born on the island of Aruba, a Dutch colony to Grenadian parents. I grew up in Grenada. Uh, And even with that simple statement of fact, we see that one can't escape the importance of history and politics to the stories of existence, um, like the working people have done for centuries from every country in the world. My parents migrated in such of opportunity in the 1940s thinking that they could make a better life for themselves. Their being in Aruba meant that they responded to a need then for migrant labor, not by the Dutch colonial government, but by an American multinational corporation, the Lago Oil Refinery, um, because Aruba was a transshipment point. So this American multinational corporation, the Lago Oil and Transport Company, took crude oil from Lake Maracaibo in Venezuela to Aruba and thence to the US. So at my birth then, my parents were part of the service labor for this complex Spanish, Dutch, English speaking organization of affairs in the continents of America. So that's how I was born in Aruba. Grenada was my childhood home because they returned or, you know, the the word returned hides a multitude of things because they were actually laid off. Um, And so they returned to Grenada soon after my birth. And perhaps that is partly why I'm interested in storytelling. Because, you know, it says so much about how the individual life is not individual at all. It is inevitably connected to a whole network of social, economic, political relations. And so that's a little introductory part of my story. For the last 26 years, from 1995 to 2021, I've taught 
um, Caribbean literature at the University of Maryland in the US. Um, at first at UMD, I also taught uh, creative writing on the MFA program, but later I wanted to focus on Caribbean literature. For two years from 2019 to 2021, I was director of the Latin American Studies Center, which is now the Latin American and Caribbean Studies Center. Um, I've studied and taught in the Caribbean. Caribbean was the 1970s and that was high school, um, Grenada and St. Lucia. Um, in the UK, in London, um, at the University of North London and in the United States. So in a sense, you know, although I didn't start off with that in mind, and generally I was following opportunities for education and helping to make it all possible with sometimes service type jobs were feasible. I think that the international travel has also been about a sense that connections among individuals and communities stretch far and wide. And I, I wanted to make those connections. I didn't always know what they would be, but I tried to hold on to them when they appeared and the field has been education. But let me say a little bit more. I should say that for further education at any event, because mine was a smaller colonial Caribbean country, Grenada, um, at the time that I grew up, I had no choice but to leave the island if I wanted a university education. And so I went, I still wanted to be in the Caribbean. Then I went to another part of the Caribbean to the University of the West Indies, the Mona Jamaica campus. And later on that, when I returned, I was a secondary school teacher in Grenada, um, then in St. Lucia. Um, and then, as I've said, still later, I taught at the university level in the UK and the USA. Um, so that means I studied in Jamaica, here in Washington, D.C., and also um, in London. And in an academic sense, literature, history, politics have been my interest. For a while, during 1981 to 1983, after I returned from a Latin American studies degree in the U.S., I worked in Grenada with the Maurice Bishop government as a researcher on Latin America and the Caribbean. And I'm very interested in issues of social justice mm. um, and the modalities, you know, how, what I use, how I um, explore those interests. It's usually through um, teaching, writing, um, theater also, although mm. I'm not an expert, but I'm always interested, an interested participant in one way or the other um, in theater. And in fact, in I started a community theater group here in Washington metropolitan area. Um, I write and have published fiction, poetry, essays in the 90s in London. I was part of a mm. Pan-Africanist poetry and music collective, The African Dawn, mm. um, focusing on a lot on socio-political protest and social justice issues. Um, and Caribbean Community Theatre, which I mentioned, um, we, it hasn't been active during the last three or so years, but in the past we've performed in the Washington metropolitan area, often focusing on stories and experiences of Caribbean people 
um, as told by Caribbean writers like Louise Bennett, Olive Senior, Leon Damas from um, French Guyana, Nancy Morejon from Cuba, Paloma Mohammed from Guyana, etc. So mm. that gives uh, some idea of um, my journey. A very, very uh, rich uh, journey. Um, if, I, if I may, I have a, would like to ask you a couple of questions around, you know, a lot that you covered. My, my first question is your, your remark around, you know, um, your interest around storytelling. And I would like to take you back to your childhood. Uh, you know, you grew up in Granada. Um, do you still recall maybe you know, how your upbringing there then, you know, made you uh, the storyteller that you are today, or well, contributed th- at least. Yes, yes. Um, I like that question, but it takes me back to so many things. Mm. <laughs> um, because, you know, yeah. um, again, I can't forget that Grenada... And this is in retrospect, because at the time Mm. I wasn't thinking that, um, was a small colonial, Mm -hmm. British colonial Caribbean country. Um, So a lot that I was interested in was what was presented to me in the school system. And in my own imagination, I made a division between what was the proper language and the proper way to tell stories, which was what I was being introduced to at school and what was the more exciting, but not necessarily, and I'm saying it, it, you know, about what I thought then, Mm -hmm. um, not necessarily proper way to tell stories that is using the Creole voice and, Mm -hmm. you know, with the inflections, et cetera. That was less approved, less approved of, I guess, within the um, school system, which was very much focused on romantics and the Victorians. Mm-hmm. So that was my um, my educational thing, but at least my formal education, because you know I, I have to be careful with use of the word education, because there's a lot of education that we get in the community that for that is excellent, but for one reason or the other may not be valued. At the time, my mother and my grandmother told lots of stories about their own lives, but I was clear in my head then, later I used those stories in my writing and, you know, um, but I was, but at the time I thought they were not as important as what I got in school. Um, I was to discover, you know, Uh, to think very differently later on. So in a real sense, I can say that um, the things, the ways that my grandmother, for example, told stories and the way that my mother told stories, um, those have had a tremendous impact on my life. Sometimes there were even things that I, I, I critiqued or thought about in different ways later. So that, for example, I remember my grandmother when she became very old, at least I no longer think that, that was very old, but that's what I thought then. I remember my grandmother, yeah. um, and she may have had a bit of dementia at the time, although I didn't know it. 
but she would be walking and talking and just saying things that she remembered from her school days and her childhood. And she would say things like, and, and hear the colonial voice now, William the Conqueror. And even the way that I'm saying it is about her performance. Hmm? Mm. William the Conqueror, the fourth son of the Duke of Normandy. He married Matilda. His children were Robert, Richard, Henry, William, and Adela. And so later on, you know, I was yeah. fascinated that my grandmother's imagination was going to the story of British royalty. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's because of the colonial. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so that in, in fact, even um, my critique of that um, is in a poem called The Lesson, mm. um, you know, which talks about the kind of colonial lesson and the way colonialism captures, takes away, shapes the imagination. Mm. Um, so you know that that gives you some sense of where the interest in the in the voice um, comes from. Certainly from stories told by my generally the women in my family. My father didn't tell as many stories um, unless he was pushed by my mother. You have been a teacher in many different countries, different countries. Um, so I have two questions around uh, that. One is, what type of a teacher are you? And second question is, um, what are the differences if, you know, when you have, are teaching in the UK or teaching in the US or, you know, in the different settings, or are there no differences? Right. Um, there are differences, but you know that that huge question, uh, apparently you like to ask huge questions. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that huge question, um, what type of a teacher are you? I guess I'd have to let my students answer that. <laughs> but um, but and I suspect that the answer would be different depending mm -hmm. on where and at what time in my journey I was, you know, encountered by, <laughs> by various people. I can think, for example, that um, I'm still very good friends with some of the people I taught in high school, mm. um, for example. And I think at that time, because I was teaching in, in Grenada in particular, the, the, I remember the students in Grenada at a time when there was a lot of discussion. Um, here we're talking about the 1970s, a lot of discussion in the community um, and internationally about issues of language, about issues of race, about black power generally. I remember teaching at a school that people told me, hey, those children there, they don't know English. Why do you want to go and teach there? Because English is what I was teaching at the time. And what struck me was that, and that was one of my most exciting teaching experiences, simply because I enjoyed presenting the Grenadian Creole that we spoke as an excellent language with no power internationally. 
So I was also learning from that particular region, how people spoke, where the words came from. And I was excited about that and saying, hey, that this is a wonderful language, but for international communication, we need, you know, let's look at English, let's look at Spanish, et cetera, and why. So just discussing issues of language and power was fascinating for me. Um, and because I loved all of the Creole, I think I had a particular approach to the teaching of English. Hmm. Um, and I suspect that a lot of the young people I taught then, and if anybody, if any of them listening and saying, no, 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 I didn't think this at all, <laughs> <laughs> that would be interesting. But I, I suspect that a lot of the people I taught then um, appreciated my approach, you know, and perhaps enjoyed that. Um, I don't think I was as good a Spanish teacher because I also taught mm. Spanish then. Um, because the way we learned Spanish, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on the grammar um, and not as much emphasis on the use of the language. Um, and in fact, it was after that teaching experience, realizing that I was really not that good on speaking. Hmm. Um, it was after that experience that I decided, hey, I'm going to go to a Spanish-speaking country. Um, and after that experience, I went to Mexico. But that was the first part, right? Hmm. Of, but, yeah. but when if I think of, of people I taught in England, for example, yeah. in the UK, where you had a strong Caribbean community and uh, people sometimes born in the diaspora who were just interested in knowing what was going on um, and interested in the writing from the region, um, writing politics, et cetera, from the region. I think um, there too, uh, uh, the students, I had a great experience with the students in particular. Um, I think here in the US, there's a different um, engagement with, or at least for, for me, there was a different mm. engagement with students because people were not as informed about the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, so that, you know, people were born in the US in some cases, um, coming to you with, uh, in some cases, because there were also people who didn't um, know about the Caribbean at all. Um, white American students who wanted to study the region um, so that I was approaching it from a different perspective. Perhaps also less forthcoming, looking back at it now, especially in the early period with issues like use of language, et cetera, um, simply because my sense was that there was a more sort of judgmental attitude about issues of language. Um, at least there is, you know, um, in the United States. And I just, in fact, read an article by a student who describes himself as Black British, and he's now here in the US, um, talking about uh, people's um, amazement or interest in a Black British accent, thinking, hey, this is not real, et cetera. Um, so I think the, the, the US um, relationship with the Caribbean is very different 
um, from the British relationship with the Caribbean. So as conflictual as both can be, there is a strange way in which I felt better known in the UK than in the US these last years. And I, I pause as I say that because it, mm. it seems so strange in a sense. These are the Americas, mm -hmm. but the colonial relationship um, perhaps is what kind of underpins that story. You know, the, the and, and perhaps I'm approaching some of that too in my current research, but you know, I'll talk about that afterwards. That's a, as brief an answer as I can give to your question. <laughs> oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, yeah, well, again, while I was listening to you, um, it seems that, you know, politics, Injustice, you know, and your engagement uh, is is also a, a part of an important part of your story. Um, can you tell a bit about, you know, the, the period of nineteen eighty one until eighty three? Mm -hmm. um, right. You know, what was going on in Granada, and what was your role uh, within that? Okay, while I was here in the U.S. Um, in 1979, um, at the time who opposed the regime of Eric Matthew Gary, um, essentially while he was out of the country, took control of the government and asked people um, in, a, in a strange way, one might say it was revolution by radio, asked people who mm. supported their perspectives to go out onto the streets, go to the police stations, ask police to put up a white flag, et cetera. Hmm. Um, so and at the beginning, that revolutionary government was really very popular. And I knew something about the individuals involved because um, I had come to the US in 78. After a lot of the struggles in Grenada, a lot of the demonstrations at the time that I was teaching in Grenada, for example, children were very often out on the streets demonstrating against the, um, the Gary regime. And I was a part of those demonstrations of the 70s, um, shaped by Black power, and by, you know, the ideas of people who had returned to the country from studying at Howard University, at University of London, at various places. So a group of young intellectuals who looked at the situation in their country and said, look, hold on here. 
this is not what we want. Um, we don't think that elections are fair. Um, we won't ever win uh, if we enter the system. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's what happened in 1979, March 1979. And because in terms of, of, of the ideological leanings, etc. And it started off very much as a black power movement. In terms of the leanings, I thought, you know, I like what is happening here. Um, I wouldn't mind being a part of this. So I went back to Grenada after doing my degree in Latin American studies. Um, uh, entered the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and was a researcher on Latin America. Um, and the Caribbean. Now that whole thing, and I said I worked from 1981 to 1983 because these, this attempt at revolution collapsed in 1983. Um, and it collapsed really essentially. Some people focus on, focus exclusively on the invasion by the US, which happened um, subsequently, but there were uh, lots of internal divisions. Mm. And although I did not support uh, the invasion by the US, because, you know, I, 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 for social justice issues, for, um, you know, just political power, issues of political power and condescension, et cetera. Um, I cannot support that kind of invasion of a small country by a large power. But I also think that locally, political leaders made tremendous mistakes. Um, and I think what was more destructive psychologically for people was the killing of the prime minister, prime minister, um, then prime minister Maurice Bishop. So it, it was internal party divisions and party confusion. And also for me, psychologically, while I opposed the invasion, um, I thought that the internal divisions, I don't want to say were more destructive, but was certainly um, a terrible for the country. So that's it. And then in 1983, when that whole process collapsed, because as I say, it collapsed both because of the internal divisions and then the US used the opportunity um, I think it was just after the US had had a failure in some other part of the world. So they used the opportunity to have an easy victory um, in Grenada. Um, <clears throat> and it was after 1983 that I, after all of that, that I went to the UK. And if you look at, at um, that period now, uh, because after the UK, you, you, you know, ultimately the last 26 years or so, right? Uh, yeah. You have been living in the US. Um, 
yeah, are you disappointed about what has happened? How do you feel at, at, at this moment? Yeah, I am. <laughs> the, the short answer is yes, I am. Yeah. Um, and I should also say that although for the last 26 years I've been here in the U.S., um, I am also constantly in Grenada mm. um, for the first for two or three years that I was here in the U.S. For the, um, I was also not for the first two or three, but for three of the first five years or so. Um, in the U.S., I was also uh, doing one semester in the U.S., one semester in Grenada. Um, hmm. So, and and now my mother, who used to live here with me, and who mm -hmm. is um, still a storyteller, although not mm -hmm. as lucid in some things, but still a storyteller at one hundred and one. Wow. Wow. Um, she is in Grenada. Okay. Um, so, you know, I'm also constantly there. Mm. Um, and I, I am disappointed that what I thought from 1979 to 1982, let's say, the kind of leadership, the kind of um, progressive ideas that were um it is my sense, and I'm very cautious here because I don't like to pronounce about a country that I don't live in. Um, but it is my sense that Grenada has lost a lot of that. Um, and I think there are times when particular governments uh, acknowledging it or not, take ideas from that 79 to 82 period. And I'm pleased when that happens because very often those are good ideas that they're taking. Mm. Um, but generally, um, one of my, one, one thing that I am completely distressed about where Grenada is concerned at the moment is that for the last few years, there's no public library. And that seems to me reprehensible. I've spoken about it publicly. Um, the library was closed because of storm damage. And um, as, for example, Jamaica Kincaid wrote about something like that in Antigua years ago. Um, but the Grenada case, for a few years, the Grenada library has been closed. Mm. And it seems to me that a responsible government, and I'm not saying that, um, that my critique is not only of, of the present government and its response to this, but the government before them um, also um, did not get the library going. Um, I've spoken to individuals in about this issue. Mm -hmm. So hopefully they're doing something because I keep hearing that, oh yes, we're fixing it. But I think something like that seems to me very basic when you can say that for years the country has not had a public library. Mm -hmm. It seems quite amazing. So yeah, there are things I, I am unhappy with, but I wouldn't like to make any huge pronouncements as someone living outside of the country. Um, there are people in the country who are um, trying to do something about that and who I think have much more of a right in a sense um, 
to express their opinions because they are there experiencing the different things. Would you um, ultimately, like your mom uh, did, go back and live there really permanently? Or will you stay in, in the U.S.? What, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, I suspect once you've been away a long time, it will be a constant movement. So I will never leave Grenada completely, which is a huge thing for me to say now because hmm. after 1983, because not just because of invasion, but because of my disappointment with what had happened politically within the country, um, I said, you know, this is it. But I imagine that, you know, that that this is it was because of the pain of the moment. Um, now I say that even though I will probably not live continually in Grenada, I will be back and forth, hmm. perhaps between here and there. That's what I see at the moment. My organization uh, is an NGO and celebrated its 75th anniversary last year. We also took that time to reflect on how we had been doing as, a, as an organization. Uh, and then one of the big topics for us is also, you know, did we do enough around racial justice? Are we doing enough, et cetera, et cetera. So my question to you is a little bit more general, is if you look at the NGO sector as a whole, and you look at their activities, um, you know, in the realm of racial justice, injustice, etc. Um, yeah, what is your opinion? What 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 do you think? Is is uh, how did they how did the NGO sector do? And um, I do realize it's a difficult question because there are so many different types of NGOs. Mm. Uh, so maybe my question is specifically about you know NGOs in the US. And uh, yeah, what what have you seen, and what's your opinion about it? So, okay, um, well, you know, there in in the first place, let me say that your question made me realize that I, I should clarify something, because although the the um, the revolutionary movement, the uh, what what became the People's Revolutionary Government we had young people there who had come out of the Black Power Movement uh, a couple of years, a few years into that organization, they became interested also in Marxism, Leninism. So that although it started off with Black Power, there was mm -hmm. also Marxist Leninist ideology um, okay. later on. So I thought it was important to clarify mm -hmm. that. Um, Whether the, Racial justice and the NGO sector is concerned, you know, I, I wouldn't say too much about um, NGO sector here, but as somebody who grew up in Grenada, I guess I was more exposed um, by NGOs to what that sector was doing okay. in Grenada mm -hmm. 
as related to education, to gender inequities, with particular concern for women, um, sexual and physical abuse of women and girls, um, and generally also um, economic inequality. And as I speak here, I'm thinking, for example, of uh, an organization called Grencoda. Um, Grenada Corp, not cooperative, Grenada Community Development Association, which throughout mm -hmm. that period, which is still existing, um, run by Judy Williams, and which throughout that period of the 70s and 80s, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I was always in touch with what they were doing as an organization, and I thought that work was so important. Um, so I think the NGO sector has done some excellent work in Grenada. There are also um, other organizations that focused on education. Um, also thinking of um, Decima Williams, who is, you know, very concerned about the, was also part of promoting SDGs. Um, and all of that, uh, that I mentioned, um, well, a lot of that comes out of the NGO sector um, in Grenada. So I think some excellent work has okay. been done there. Okay. Um, I'd like to piggyback on what you mentioned around uh, the SDGs or Sustainable Development Goals. You know, I, I try within my podcast often to talk about that because I think it's important for people to know that they exist and they might not be perfect, but I think it's a good thing that we as a world have established the, these goals that we are trying to uh, aim for. Um, if I ask you uh, to talk about, to lift up, you know, the topic of sustainable development goals, what is it that you would like the listeners to know about the sustainable development goals? Well, I guess for one thing, I, I suspect that some of the, well, I'm glad you spelled it out, sustainable development goals, because I suspect that some of the listeners, if we just say SDGs, would be wondering what on earth are SDGs. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals of the United Nations, um, they are, in fact, things we think about without naming them necessarily SDGs. Um, and I would say that the UN is also taking its lead from communities which have named some of these goals for years. Um, no poverty, no hunger, um, good health, quality education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, um, and in a, in a sense, I think that parents, for example, have constantly been saying to children, I want you to get a good education, <laughs> right? Um, health is important, et cetera. Think of those who are hungry in the world. Um, so these, when I think of the SDGs, I say, I think, all right, let's bring it down to basics. 
These are things that we talk about. I also, you know, think of Psalms. Mm -hmm. For example, um, the Mighty Diamonds in the 1970s had a song that was, you know, I need a roof over my head and bread on my table with love in my heart for everyone. I say, okay, the, the people's goals, the mm -hmm. UN SDGs um, are there. Um, so they're people's goals to me, re-articulated in the organization, um, envisioning the importance of areas that are relevant to our lives and things that we talk about all the time. Um, you know, and as I think of the goals, I think of the importance of the emphasis on things like climate, for example. Um, not necessarily talked about by parents in those same terms mm -hmm. um, years ago. But also, you know, I, I think, for example, of the way that um, as, as we think about climate and the environment, uh, and I know we started off with the term SDGs, but my, I think how my father, who certainly did not know the term SDG or think of the UN Sustainable Development Goals, would say to me something like, my father was a farmer, and he would say to me something like, um, you see, we can't cut down all of those trees. We need that for windbreak. We need that for, <laughs> you know, um, when there are weather issues, you know, so things like that. Mm -hmm. So I think of the SDGs as uh, things that are very relevant to our lives and that we have always been concerned about. And I think it is great that the UN focuses, you know, is encouraging a focus on them. So that when I said to my daughter, for example, um, SDGs, she said, oh yes, we have those, they make us look at those in school. And I thought, great. You, you, you were referring to a song. Um, I, I always talk about music as well uh, with my guests. And if I ask you to come up with a, uh, a song or a piece of music that best embodies uh, who you are, what you are about, what song or piece, piece of music would that be? Is that, a, is that a song that you just mentioned or is it another song? Um, no, you know, there are so many songs. <laughs> yeah. um, and um, so that is difficult to say. Um, and the Mighty Diamonds, yeah, that's one of them. But there are so many songs that when you ask... You have to pick one. <laughs> oh, gosh. So that, that is very difficult. Perhaps singing Sandra's ancient rhythms. Singing Sandra is a Calypsonian. Hmm. Um, uh, woman Calypsonian, she's from Trinidad and Tobago, um, and ancient rhythms. Sandra died last year. She was born in 1957. Um, and I would choose that perhaps because the poet singer is calling out ancestors. She's calling on traditional Yoruba deities. Um, and I choose it not for the specific religion, 
but for the idea of spirituality, of a call to Black ancestry for strength. Um, in the song, she says, from across the continent that someone's described as dark, I feel a rhythm, I feel a vibration, I feel a spark. Um, and I like the triumphant defiance of that song. It's an offering, it's a chanting of her journey. Um, she's, in the song, she says, when my spirit is feeling low, something deep in the rhythm, um, in the ancient rhythm calls to me. So I would probably choose, um, if I were forced to choose one of the yes, many I'm forcing songs, you. <laughs> of the many songs, I would choose Sandra's ancient rhythms. Great, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, well, you know that that uh, this podcast is a spin-off of a hundred-mile walk that I started ten years ago. And I finished the 10th last October. Um, and, and so I try to walk to raise awareness and funds for, you know, to end hunger, poverty, and injustice. Um, if you would be asked to walk 100 miles in a week, um, why would you walk? Okay, well, congratulations on finishing the last one, the, at least not the last one, but the 10th. Um, well, I would not now consider physically walking a hundred miles, but I think um, more about metaphorically walking those miles. Um, some miles, perhaps we might say further than parents and ancestors walked not because they didn't walk far enough, but because their walking helped to direct my steps. Um, so, and, and that I would walk, you know, part of the story of my broader interest in social justice issues. Um, because just as I marched in the seventies for racial and social justice issues, those issues could get me back out on the streets if I were physically um, able to do that now. I'm often accompanied by other people when I do this uh, 100 mile uh, walk. Uh, and then we talk about, you know, what is the purpose of life? Uh, what drives you? And it's very often we talk about uh, religion and spirituality. Um, and especially about younger generation. What are you seeing among youth in your community around these topics of religion and spirituality? What is your observation? I believe that there is a very complex answer to how we are, who we are. And, you know, as I look at an answer that I haven't figured out, and I think that um, where young people are concerned, um, I worry in recent times, especially about young people and mental health. This hmm. 
this this period of withdrawal from the world um i think of how ideas are being shaped um not just here but also in grenada and the rest of the caribbean i think of the virus of course i think it's upsetting that some seem to be putting themselves um at more risk because they're not convinced of the need for vaccinations for example so I, I can't think of um, young people today without thinking of something like that. Um, and I realize that some people are not pretending to be afraid, that they are actually afraid of the vaccinations. Um, so, you know, I'm conscious of that too. Um, this Their fear leads them to do something very different from what my fear leads me to do. Um, and so as I think of spirituality, I think of all of those things. I worry that young people are not getting the opportunity to meet and greet um, in ways that we have come to think of as normal, um, to form intimate relationships, alliances, etc. And there seems to me, as I think of spirituality, I think that there seems to me to be something huge going on not just in my individual environment, but in the world, in the universe. Um, it is as if, to me, we have been put to sit and assess, um, you know, something big about our ways of being. Mm -hmm. um, and since you asked about young people generally, I would say, for example, that over the last few years, it, it, it was great to, over the last couple of years, it's great to see people young and old, but certainly more young people um, out there on the streets expressing their views. Um, and it seems to me that, you know, and, and I, I cannot, I think of spirituality in that broad sense, mm -hmm. because it seems to me that these things would continue, that kind of expression will continue um, because it must, mm -hmm. um, because life itself is that kind of cycle. Um, so I see ideas of spirituality also bummed up with ideas of struggle and human progress. Are you hopeful, you know, that we, you know, that we as a world, but especially then the younger generation will be able to move forward in a, in a more positive way, that this moment, uh, which seems to be, you know, that if I listen to you carefully, you know, maybe this is, universe is telling us, use this moment to really reflect, to bring, uh, our lives and, and this world, you know, forward in a, in a more positive way. Mm -hmm. Are you still hopeful? Yes. In spite of the fact that this is a distressing time, I'm hopeful. I've said what are some of the things I worry about. Um, but hope is in the knowledge that 
um, the journey goes on. That, um, mm. you know, each generation will, in spite of whatever is happening, um, continue to struggle for a deeper understanding of everyday lives, of existence, of um, interactions with others, etc. Um, and again, you know, I come back to songs because I guess that's the artist's <laughs> kind of thing in me. I think of, of the hep, hep tones, mm. a Jamaican rock steady reggae um, vocal group, three young men um, singing, young men singing three-part harmonies. Um, again, and I go back here to the 1960s and 70s. They were active during that time. And they had a, a song called The Book of Rules. Um, and in that book, in, in that song, they say to, to quote them, people like you and me will be builders for eternity. You know, and, and to me, that's where the hope is. The song says, mm -hmm. um, each is given a bag of tools, a shapeless mass, and the book of rules. So, I mean, spiritually, I think that each person may decide, they, they may focus on something different as the book of rules. Um, and perhaps each generation um, carves something from that shapeless mass. Um, and each individual tries to make something recognizable from this shapeless mass. And I think that hope lies um, in that. So that, you know, young people, that's what they're trying to do, make something recognizable and something that, you know, they can adhere to from the shapeless mass that they've been given. And I think that's where the hope is. The tools differ, but mm. as the heptones say, we will be builders for eternity. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I'm sure the listeners have figured out how smart you are because although I, I forced you to come up with only one song, you have now mentioned already three. <laughs> I'm glad well, I could get around that. <laughs> well, um, you know, time always flies. Um, I, I have one last question for you, and that is to ask you, you know, if you have uh, one last message, an invitation, a question, or something else that you would like to share with the listeners that we did not touch upon uh, today? Well, we, we touched on a lot, but just to say that perhaps my, my current research is on Louise Langdon Norton Little, who is the, was the, she died in 91, was the Grenadian mother of Malcolm X. Um, and with that project, I'm trying to think of Louise Little herself and other Grenadian women like her and their impact on the stories of their children. So that's my current project. 
And and when do you hope to yeah release the book or or is it will it be a book or or it it's it's a book um mm -hmm. and it's also a digital project okay um and the digital project is I'm getting support for the digital project mm -hmm. meaning people actually helping me with the digitizing etc okay. talking to me about that um from the University of Maryland's um, African-American Digital Humanities Project, ADHUM. So it will be a digital project. Okay. Um, and it will also be a book. Um, later this year, I should be able to talk about a website okay. for the digital project. Okay. So, yeah, if you can, when uh, as soon as you know more, if you can let me know, then I can still add it later on to the podcast notes. So um, that can people can find it out yeah i would like to thank you for for uh, you know your willingness to talk with me uh, giving me time sharing your knowledge and your experience and uh, your stories uh, most of all i really enjoyed it and um, looking forward to you know the book uh, that you're working on well thank you thank you for asking me i think walk talk listen is a wonderful idea um And I appreciate you asking me to participate. Great. No, thank, thank you. I have to thank you so much. Good. Thank you. for listening to walk, talk, listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.